0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org.
1: Well, we're sort of seduced into thinking that, like, here's life, and then there's these bad things that can happen that are like obstacles that just fall into your road as if the obstacle is not the road you know we want to think that that all things being equal you know we should be content all the time and would be except for these pesky flies that want to ruin every picnic you know as if that isn't what the picnic is
0: i'm higher now than ever i thought i'd need prepared If I how Gravity had so long refused my prayer
2: Joe Henry faced his mortality this past year with stage 4 cancer. Having been told he might have months to live, he's now in remission and has created a gorgeous new album, The Gospel According to Water. But Joe's wisdom about living and the loss that strangely defines it ran all the way through the cherished conversation I had with him in 2016. He is beloved by fellow musicians as much as by fans. He's made over a dozen albums of his own and written and produced for an array of other artists, including Elvis Costello, Bonnie Raitt, Rhiannon Giddens, Billy Bragg, and Madonna. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being.
0: I surrender and I'll provide the war.
2: Joe Henry is based in Los Angeles with his wife Melanie. Their long marriage is a vivid presence across time in his songs. He was born in the south, but grew up mostly in Michigan. You know, you've said that that what the Bible means to your parents, the American Songbook means to you. Uh, was that always true? I mean, that that gives me the impression that the Bible was a presence in your childhood.
1: Oh, it was absolutely. I mean, my parents, um, both from North Carolina, as I am, I didn't I didn't really grow up there, but my parents both came from the Charlotte area. And they're very devout Christian people. And I mean, so I did grow up with that being an absolute fundamental part of their being. Um, And I was not only invited for that to be true for me, but I I wouldn't say insisted, but I, I was brought up as if that was, you know, this is your vocabulary. This is your spiritual, cultural vocabulary. But I will say that with no disrespect at all to my beloved parents and, and their faith, which is paramount to them and, and remains so. Um, even as a young person, uh, that wasn't authentic to me. Music, on the other hand, without me having to decide to let it in, um, changed me. And you know, you're so vulnerable to influence, especially when you don't know you're being influenced. You know, when you're young enough and something enters your psychic bloodstream and changes that landscape, and you don't know to protect those borders, you know, you're wide open to it. Um, I found it doing to me what I now think other people, what they get out of, you know, a spiritual awakening I got from a musical awakening. I didn't know how to call it that, but I I see now that that's what was happening to me.
2: Yeah. And is it right that you were a stutterer, that you stuttered when you were a child? Yeah. But you could sing.
1: Well, um, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. The truth is, is that I never really stopped. I've just gotten really good at driving around it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, even, I don't think about it. But there are moments where I notice there's a word that I understand that I can't say. Yeah. And I pick another one.
2: Um, you've always been really expressive in writing about your music. Which, you know, which every yeah. musician is not. I mean, even like the liner notes, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, it, it's not something I would normally have as part of the research, mm-hmm. but I realized that those liner notes were really important. Um, you know, you say that this stands as a defining moment personally as an artist, though you preface that by saying, I feel myself continuing to evolve daily. And that's really apparent that that kind of personal yeah. evolution through time and it seems like you've been aware and maybe and, and able to be articulate about this evolution, both of who you are and how songs mm-hmm. arise and the interplay between those two things.
1: Well, I will say that there was a long time where I, I didn't think I was allowed to be observant of my process or certainly not allowed to talk about it because the musicians I most admired were in our famously. Um, Big liars, for starters. But even beyond that, um, you know, unwilling to to cast too much of a light, you know, on the work that the work itself is not throwing off. You know, you're not there to explain a song to anybody. Right. You're not there to hold anybody's hand through it. Nor should you. Yeah. Um, but I, I will say that as I as I continue in my work life more and more. All the lines that I used to think distinguished one part of my job from another part of my job uh, are, are all very blurred now. I don't really observe a difference in what I do for myself as an artist or what I do for other people when I work as a record producer. Um, I don't think very differently about how I write liner notes, for instance, than how I write songs. You uh-huh. know, it's, uh-huh. it's, about, it's, a, it's surrender more than anything. Yeah, And it's about listening to what this means to say, and not what I mean to say. Because I, I love a lot of songs, but I don't have one idea what's going on. In well,
2: them. right. But see, and I think that's yeah. what intrigues me,
1: yeah.
2: is the kind of the adventure and the mystery of writing that you're very aware of as you write your songs.
0: Well, mystery that, is the word. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That, that you give voice to something that you didn't know you thought, and that you may have to... Mm. Spend some time figuring out Mm. what it means. It's very mysterious and wonderful.
1: Well, it is mysterious. I mean, um, I think as anybody who who lives any kind of—is devoted to a creative life, but but not only, I mean, any of us alive, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we're really called not to dispel mystery but to abide it, you know, to engage it. And that doesn't mean— necessarily making sense out of it. It's just understanding that there's a big part of this that is inherently and beautifully and romantically mysterious has to be and always shall be. Um, I write to discover. Yeah. And if I'm engaged by what that writing has become, then I try to think about what, you know, you know, might it engage anybody else? Mm -hmm. It's to just, you know, try to put my finger on it and and hear it.
0: A blind man looks out through your eyes. He is the color of your side. Taste the last upon your thigh, then roar.
2: written about that process. They remind me of the way about the way novelists write about the process of writing. You know, you've written there are many ways a song can take shape and they can always be different. They need only to be finally a living thing unto themselves. That the opening line of a song might come to you like a book falling open.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, yeah.
2: And that, that's that adventure that
1: Well, again, it's the, it's the it's the idea that even as you're writing, you're not trying to re-articulate a finished thought that stands, you know, fully formed in your mind. I mean, um, I assume that maybe you know uh, the poet Jane Hirschfield, you Mm -hmm. know, her work at Mm all. Um, I'm a great admirer of hers, and um, we've never met face-to-face, but we've become great pen pals. But she was writing um, to me recently about that very real notion that the the poem has an intelligence that the poet does not have. Mm.
2: So how do you think about the alchemy that does happen between, you know, we talked about you as a writer, but you write songs. Mm -hmm. And how do words, you know, shift and change when music wraps around them or they make their way inside music? Like what, how do you think about that?
1: Well, I think about that as little as possible in some ways, because it's, um, there's a, uh, an impulse that's, that's purely fear-based that, you know, if you, if you try to understand too much about how that works, it will stop working. And yeah. I don't really think that any of this is that fragile. I'm not actually fearful of it, but I, it's something that is absolutely mysterious. You know, why some thought is, seems to be musical thought. Um, like I said, some things show up as a poem and I just understand that this is not something that would, be musical coming out of my mouth, right. um, even if it's thematically something that I might write a song about or might show up in a song, um, you know, there are certain words that I think I'll be writing and say, you know, if this is a poem, that's the right word. If it's a song, it's the wrong word because that's not a musical, mm. you know, there's not a musical tonality to that word. Right. You might write something that's deliberately a little bit awkward to, to slow listeners and readers down so that they don't just blaze through it like they're reading a grocery list.
2: Mm. That's really interesting. That's I think that's the kind of uh analysis that most listeners to music would not make. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of that mm-hmm. until you say it and that's yeah. true.
1: Well, um you know, one of your uh confederates was talking to me earlier this morning about about George Jones and I was just remembering I'm remembering now that at one point um he was pitched to sing a song that Paul Westerberg had written. One of your uh, favorite sons here in the in, in the twin cities, Paul Westerberg of the replacements. His song Here Comes the Regular was pitched to George Jones. And and the word fridge is in the song. And George says, I can't sing that song. <laughs> I could I could never sing the word fridge. That's the way I heard the story anyway. Yeah. And I thought, well of course not. To George, that's just that's not a that's not a musical word. Yeah. And that's the you know
2: and not a beautiful word. No. No. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense.
0: The carriage in Stamp and fume until all color's gone. They leave the street in black and white. And bring the evening on. Tough
2: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on Being. Today, with singer, songwriter, and producer, Joe Henry
0: driver pulls his blanket high, pretends to look beyond, pray for you, pray for me, sing it like a song.
2: I really, really love *Invisible Hour*. Well, thank you. Your, as we're speaking here, it's your newest album. I, I'm so I'm in, in, intrigued by how we use. Like, do you still? I think people still talk about records and albums. Mm.
1: Um, those of us we who haven't make them, cast I those you. things
2: aside, right? We can't. <clears throat> it's not the same as. Oh,
1: well, we still say album, you know, because it's a, yeah. it's a deliberate statement. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, uh, we understand album as a durable format, just like, you know, mm-hmm. um, a haiku is a durable format. The blues form, as a songwriting form, is durable. Okay. And the hour and a half movie, the three-act play, you know, an album still, yes. 10 to 12 songs, we know how to hear that and still follow yeah. th- the arc. Right. You
2: know? So so Invisible is the latest one, and um, you know, you've said, you kind of said after the fact, writing about it after the fact, that you realized it was about marriage. And You know, but really the redemptive power of love in the face of fear. To me, um, if it's about marriage, it's just marriage as a most intense way to talk about the complexity of human beings together. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, you know, I realized, uh, I thought after the fact that time was the thread that connected all the songs. You know, that in some way all the characters were grappling with time. And after I finished Invisible Hour, I thought, well, all the characters in some way are challenging themselves with with commitment to somebody mm-hmm. or they are bereft of a commitment and desperately in need of one. Mm-hmm. but looking at it from either side, you're still you're still talking about you know the way in which you know real commitment you know informs and and changes all of us
2: yeah um, And also I think how real commitment is so exacting and never never complete. Right, I mean, or, or how it's always this. Uh, I mean, you know, there's these just these two lines from the Grave Angels. You know, we are gathered together, we are hidden from view, and that's, those two things are always true, even in the most intimate relationship.
1: Sure, and and I mean, I, th- I think one thing that you're getting at is this idea that a marriage is a verb, not a noun. It's it's not something you did. It's not something you possess. It's something that you engage in, and you have to be, you know you are being married all the time. Mm -hmm. You didn't get married, you know. Mm -hmm. You you are in the process of being married. And I I am as I sit before you, even though I'm a long way from home. Um, I'm asked to be constantly engaged in being married. Um, And I think that's something that's, it sounds like a subtle distinction, and it's not subtle at all. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And and I guess, and and, then that's where all this comes from in you. And then I guess, you know, part of this mystery and power that we've talked about of writing or songs is you know those of us who don't have a marriage mm-hmm. still have all these other relationships where we grapple with this reality of being gathered together and hidden from view at the same time sure point. and
1: i'm not just talking about you know formalized you know legal marriage yeah, of I course know. you know yeah. it's it's i think if it if it works at all it's it's you know that idea of you know i sort of accept my own marriage as absolute fact of my person i mean um and i think of that like i look at my relationship to my children or to my uh, my, my my brother david for example i could have a big uh, fallen out with my brother david but it wouldn't change the fundamental fact that he's my brother even if we were estranged god yeah. forbid that would be true and i think of that you know at least for me that's how i see my marriage it's just that no matter what happens that has become a fundamental um Absolute of you know the fabric of my being, and mm-hmm. I don't know how to I don't know how to see myself without that component. Mm-hmm. I don't know myself without that piece of that uh, puzzle in place. Just like I don't know myself not being a parent, yeah. I almost don't remember what it's like. You know, I've said to my wife Melanie, uh, I can think back to our married days before children, and it's almost like I I knew who our children were. They just hadn't arrived. But in retrospect, I feel like I don't know myself without knowing them
2: i know i I said that to one of my best friends the other day because we're we're at this place where our children are growing up and leaving but i said i cannot imagine who i would be without them Mm -hmm. like i can't even imagine that person it's impossible
1: it's impossible yeah
0: yeah
2: i just want to read these lines because they're so beautiful this is also from the grave angels song I take this to be holy, if futile, uncertain, and dire. Our union of fracture, our dread everlasting, this beautiful, desperate desire. The cloud darkens to harrow, it crosses your heart like hand, but it's cool like the shadow of all that we've seen by the light that we can't understand. What's it like for you to hear words like that read back to you?
1: Well, um... I happen to like those, so uh, thanks. Uh, uh, I hear a different uh, musicality in them coming, you know, from you than if I were to try to read them, mm. which is which is really interesting. Yeah. Um,
2: do you know what those words mean now? Like,
1: I think I do. I, you know, at a certain point, I think you know my my interpretation after the fact doesn't have any more authority than than, than, than yours or anybody's. Right. And um, I like the acknowledgement at the end of that stanza that you read about. Sort of the idea that 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 we live among shadow, but the light that creates the shadow is absolutely, um, in so so many ways, unknowable to us, and yet it's a source of of all that moves around us and and makes things move around us, yeah. and yet there is just this part of it that is paramount and completely unknowable.
2: Mm-hmm. That thing you said um, about your interpretation not being any more valid than anyone else's once the song is out there in the world. That's so interesting. I mean, that's part of that mystery of, of writing, isn't it, too? Well, it's
1: back to letting go of this idea that you're not going to of the impulse of trying to explain anything to anybody.
2: Yeah. But I also think you're, you're talking about the fact that there's reality and dignity in however it lands, like whatever meaning it lands with. In any ears, in any life.
1: Well, in the same way that, you know, um, you know, when Thomas Merton said, you know, everything that is, is holy, um, takes away any impulse to want to judge anything, to, to be anything other than sacred. You know, the only thing that's, that's other is how we choose to uh, dishonor those things. But, you know, nothing by its nature is not sacred.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, even the most deadly thing um, only is anything other than sacred if we elect to be, less with it.
0: The dark great river bends below me A void of light now tells me so Where tiny towns crowd its shoulders Between the world and all I know Thunder rolls beneath my feet Mountain clouds slide just for show, flashing green along the border between the world and all I know.
2: I want to talk to you about uh, God, sure. which is uh, which many people would hear what you just said about that light that's ever present mm-hmm. you know that that might be a way of talking about god i sense that in the course of your life and your writing you've you've had different a different relationship with using that word but then I it's sure kind have. of surprised you that that it it's become more overt and more present and more frequent Well part of maybe. it you know
1: you just live long enough and you and you really do learn to care less about what anybody might think about what you might offer yeah. that's that's one of the the great bonuses of surviving you know yeah um yeah, for a while I think I w- I really would have resisted anything that felt like I was directly referencing so-called God, you know, and how anybody might perceive God.
2: You know, just wrote in those liner notes to the Civilians album in 2007, speaking of which I have noticed with surprise and only in retrospect how often God is mentioned throughout this 12 song cycle and he must be surprised as well. Um You you went on to say, you know, you recognize in his many appearances, one among us who stretches like, oh, okay, so I have to read the whole thing. Um, (laughs) I recognize in his many appearances, though, not the God of my Methodist raising, who sat judging tennis balls in or out from high on a perch, but one among us who stretches like the net itself, wholly visible in there, but to frame the attempt. That's pretty great. This oh. is a theological statement.
1: Yeah, I probably stole it from somewhere and I can't remember where. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's, uh, uh, Krista, it's one of those things. That I, I, I see how many of the musicians, writers, poets that I have um, been devoted to my entire adult life who are in no uncertain terms grappling with their spiritual lives, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's Flannery O'Connor or, 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 or Merton or James Wright or, uh, you know, Rilke, who who's, who's probably gets name-checked on your show more than almost yeah, anybody. That's true, yeah. Um, I've gotten to the point where I don't, I don't call any song finished if I don't think that it somehow is vibrating with that awareness of how we live in spite of the inevitable, which is what all spirituality is is how do we how do we come into being, how do we live fully um in the constant conscious knowledge that we won't always mm-hmm. uh, and how do you invest in any kind of idea of of real uh you know commitment in the face of of everything being finite, yeah, and I think that every in some way every song that I write. Is awake to that, uh, you know, awareness of that, that disparity, and uh, I, I don't think anything else interests me at some level.
2: Yeah, there's this. Oh, you know, the song that's in, uh, that's in this album, "Every Sorrow," you know, every, after every sorrow comes a joy, but every sorrow knows one more. I, you you know, it yeah. ends in, after every sorrow comes a joy, and every story knows one more, and that's the gritty kind of manifestation of this struggle Mm -hmm. tension this big cosmic tension right that we kind of live with in all of our days and all of our relationships and
1: well we're sort of seduced into thinking that like you know here's life and then there's these bad things that that can happen that are like obstacles that just fall into your road as if the obstacle is not the road you know we want to think that, (laughs) that all things being equal you know we should be um content all the time and would be except for these pesky flies that want to yeah. ruin every picnic, you know, as if that isn't what the picnic is, you know, is it, it, that idea that, you know, if you cut yourself off from great sorrow. You also cut yourself off from great joy. Um, it's, it's a simple enough idea that if you don't really understand, <laughs> it's um, a simple enough you know, idea. It's a well, hard enough
2: reality. You know,
1: if, yeah. you know, we only know any, any such thing as light because of darkness. I mean, it's fundamental. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you exercise your, uh, exercise your demons your angels will leave too you know I mean that's that's sort of the common wisdom I think
0: darkness, darkness settles on the ground leaves the day stumbling blind coming to a quiet close and maybe just a time almost lost the heart to know How to keep our best in mind
1: We'd almost lost the
0: heart to know How to keep our best
2: in mind After a short break, more with Joe Henry. You can listen again to this show and everything we do on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts.
0: On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities.
2: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on Being, today with singer-songwriter Joe Henry. After a year in which he faced his mortality, he's now released a gorgeous album, The Gospel According to Water. This song is Grave Angels from Joe's 2014 album, Invisible Hour.
0: We are gathered together We are hidden from In a tangle of laurel, we tear at our sorrow like bread, start up anew. Then foolish we are in the presence of God, and what all his grave angels have done. In love's growling weather, if we're dreaming together of our heaven. Apart from this one, apart from our own.
2: You do use the imagery of angels a lot. It weaves in and out.
1: Yeah, it's probably a bad habit. I mean, they're such faithful images. You
2: yeah, know? well, and they're different. I mean, the Grave Angels is the title of a song. And that is.
1: The angels have gotten nicer, by the way. You know, I have a have song they? on a, an album called Fuse. From uh, 1999, I think. And and there's a song called Angels, and they're really nasty in that
0: one.
2: Also, here's Plainspeak. Blood-lusty angels looking to rumble in town. What are are you, what are you, uh, I mean, in this Sparrow song, which I love so much, I wait for one grave angel, and I know she waits for me. What is that? Do you know? What are the angels? What is that image about?
1: Um... You know, I I guess the angels are just this concept of, of of needing to visualize some way in which the higher powers might be loving and benevolent even when we don't deserve it. You know? Um But yeah, I think I, I think the angels may you know, maybe you know, kind of in literary terms, you know, being a bit of the brokers between the, the earthly and the divine, you know. Mm-hmm. They got a foot in both streams.
2: Yeah. Um Yeah, so you and I are very close in age. I was—we you know, were both born in 1960, right? Mm-hmm. I was born in November. I was we born, born in, in December. December. Yeah, we were just starting to take in world events, and so much of it was just unbelievably tragic.
1: It was personally
2: tragic. Even the public events were personal tragedies.
1: Well, interesting. I—I I think my earliest memory. Um, and, I, and I, I subscribe to, you know, when John Cage said, um, "I don't. Uh, the, the past doesn't influence me. I influence it. I know I'm constantly, you know, reimagining my past and assigning different significance to it. Um, it's completely in play all the time. But I have a memory, and I think it's my earliest one, if it's accurate, of laying on the floor, underneath the ironing board, as my mother ironed and watched Kennedy's funeral on TV." Oh. And the reason I remember, it, and I can remember looking up at the, at the foam lining underneath her ironing board and understanding that she was upset yeah. and that somebody had died. Right. And I remember saying to her, does this mean you're going to die someday? And she said, yes, it does. And then I said, does that mean I'm going to die someday? And She said, yes, you are, honey.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Huh.
1: But um, I moved to Atlanta after that. And was living in Atlanta when Dr. King was killed. I mean, he was killed in Memphis, but he lived in Atlanta. His church was in Atlanta, of mm. course. And um, I have really visceral memory of that particular time. And certainly, as I got a bit older, more and more, I tried to erase my my Southern background from from my sense of self. And it, it took a long time, you know, to be able to find how that is a significant part of who I am, and and to be. Uh, I'm proud of, about a lot of things about my upbringing, but I have a hard time still connecting myself to the South as I understood it in that moment.
2: Mm-hmm. You don't do much that's overtly political, I don't feel. But you do care about public life, common life. I'm really, really liking talking about common life these days. Um, you actually wrote a book about Richard Pryor, which like, I don't even know how to talk about that. <laughs> I don't think we're going to go into that. No. It's just, but um, but he, but the scar scar, begins with Richard Pryor addresses the nation. I mean, there are just these lines like the blade of our outrageous fortune, like a parade, it cuts a path. Light shows on our foolish way, and darkness on our aftermath. I mean, I don't know what you were writing about there, but to me, it's very resonant with
1: mm. I mean, that song scar is a, is, a, is an anomaly for me uh, in that. You know, I, I say I can count on less than a hand how many times I wrote, I've written a song and knew when I was writing it what I was writing about. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a few of those experiences. Okay. And when you talk about the political, um, the album that I put out after 9-11, uh, you know, the first record I would have made after 9-11 was called Tiny Voices, which is a very chaotic sort of record and sonically uh, messy as it had to be. And I think in a lot of ways very overtly political. There's a song in there called Flag that is about nationalism. And when I was writing the song, I knew there was something about it I thought was significant to me as a, as a song, but I could not abide the way in which I thought it was so overtly political and of this moment.
0: In a crowd come off the hill Full of blood, lust, and goodwill We carried pride above our heads like a flag we could cheer to wake the day.
1: Traveling a few years ago, I spent about three weeks traveling in Europe with Harry Belafonte, helping him. um, Well, I I first came into his orbit, he was asking for some musical help when he was finishing the film documentary of his life. Uh, I have to be careful here because I could talk about this for about an hour because a lot of mystical things happened to me surrounding uh, Mr. Belafonte. Well, just tell me one, maybe. Well, he's a very, as you know, he's a very politically, um, savagely politically active person, and God bless him. He's he's walked that walk his entire professional life. You know, um, He's a remarkable person, and a true blessing to be in his company for for extended period of time. But one night, we were up late in the hotel bar in Berlin when we were traveling together, and at a big table of people, a lot of conversations going on, he overheard me talking about this and saying that I, I didn't allow political content to surface in my songs. I wouldn't, I wouldn't abide it. And he stopped conversation and spoke in that whisper that everybody hears right. um, and really dressed me down about it and said, you know, he didn't give a shit what, what I meant to say is what the song meant to say. I didn't have any right not to let the song say what the song needed to say and I should take myself out of it. <laughs> and then he asked me if I wanted to walk home cuz we were in Berlin of course. Wow. And he was and he really challenged me and I really did go back and think a lot about the inherent vanity of trying to of thinking at all about how a song made me look. That that as a as a writer, I was not allowed to have an opinion about that, or it was a mistake too. It was a diver, a distraction to have that opinion.
2: I've had a few conversations lately with, um, you know, musicians who are different from you, but but you know, the folk singers or like, the Indigo Girls, right, talking about mm. how they they and others they're in conversation with are you know wondering if they need to create that. A new, whatever our version it would be of the tradition of, you know, Pete Seeger and the mm-hmm. the song, the music that was not just the soundtrack for the Civil Rights Movement, but really powered it in many ways. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, the danger in our culture is that anything that becomes ubiquitous becomes frequently invisible and then meaningless to people.
2: And that's probably more true now than it was then.
1: And it's something mm-hmm. I've I've thought a lot about. And when I was traveling with Harry in Europe... Uh, the film project that we were researching together, he wants to, to make a documentary about about violence, but most specifically about how the, the hip-hop movement, which he was instrumental in allowing to flourish, um, how it went from being a very communal tradition to being so much about violence, and degradation of women, and degradation of self, and he went on this trip, and I was in his company in in Paris and in Berlin and in London. He was meeting with the most significant hip-hop artist and challenging them. They thought they were being summoned to sort of be anointed by Harry. Right. And he sat there with cameras running. They had agreed to be interviewed. And he would begin by saying, why have you allowed your music, your vocabulary to be co-opted? It was uh, incredible. It was incredible. Amazingly intense, and it was not comfortable, and it was, ma- it was incredible to see because, uh, you know, Harry looks at the power of folk song in particular, yeah. but the, the political power and the unifying power of all folk music, which in his mind, and I agree with him, hip-hop was folk music in that moment yeah. in that community. Yeah, yeah that's-, um, that, that's his point of view, and you're letting it be defanged. You, you know, you're letting its authority be, you know, co-opted and used against you. And I think a lot of us have allowed that.
2: So just coming back to this very notable uh, feature of your work of kind of a self-aware evolution. And again, I mean, I'm going to read you some lines and I have no idea if that's what this you meant by it. But <laughs> the Sparrow song.
0: It wasn't peace I wanted. So it wasn't peace I found.
2: It wasn't peace I wanted, so it wasn't peace I found. I wouldn't stand for reason, and it never would sit down.
0: I wouldn't stand for reason And it never would sit down
2: That's the kind of observation one makes about one's... that one's Mm. only able to make Mm -hmm. about oneself, whatever Mm -hmm. the context of that was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess I appreciate how you are being so self-aware about this process of moving through life and getting to a place where you can see things you couldn't see before?
1: Well, um, it's essential. um, You know, how close any of us get to it on any given day, uh, you know, is up for grabs. You know, some days, you know, I feel, um, you know, I feel like I have a very good aerial view, you know. Yeah. Um, You know, I'm the lifeguard above the pool. And I can see everything for better and worse, uh, plenty of days i you know I feel like I'm you know chin deep in the middle of that water and 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 I don't know how deep it is and and i'm I am a in fact a lousy swimmer, you know yeah, you know that's more like it um, I have the desire to be aware yeah. <laughs> you know
2: but I mean that's half the battle I mean but I was it's... just I kind of feel like you like me are fascinated by this process i mean like, I, was, I was talking to my daughter the other day because I was I wasn't complaining about something about being older, but she heard it as complaining. I was just I was mm-hmm. noting something about being older,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and she's like, "Oh, mom, I wish you just you know just wish you wouldn't think about those things." I said, "Yeah," I said, "I don't think you understand." I used to hear people talk about older people talk about being older, mm-hmm. and I it disturbed me. I felt like why are they focusing on that?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like they were highlighting what was wrong. And now I realize that the process of growing older is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about it because it's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and I think you, you as we get older, you, you come into some true ownership, you know. I think when you're young, uh, you're you're inclined to believe, invited to believe, that you ha- you couldn't have done anything significant enough to, to own an identity, a point of view. Uh, um, and then you get to a point where you say, like, well, I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm basically who I am now. Yeah. And whatever this is, however I can you know, work from this as a as a base of operations, you know, this finite mass. I'm going to. And there's a liberation that comes with getting to a point where you think yeah. I'm not waiting, you know, for that next great shoe to drop. Both the shoes may be laying here and this might be what what there is. And there's terrific liberation in in acknowledging, you know, what is. That idea of actually, you know, seeing in real time this. And our culture does not know how to encourage that kind of thinking we don't we don't know how to teach young people i don't believe to think about you know everything is is about later you know i watch my my dear daughter going through her senior year of high school and everything's been about yeah or last year in particular you know everything about sat scores and everything it's like you know you know you're having an experience right now yeah that that i hope is not completely lost on you because everybody is has you so anxious about what next you know you're invited just to check things off a list, just to say that you'd, you've done them, um, as opposed to actually having experience and and giving that any value.
2: I mean, here's here's some great a great line from uh, Slide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm learning more than I intended. Try not to, though I might. <laughs> We're dying to be other, but we kill not to become. Grief sides with glory. They laugh deep into the night. Learning more than they intended. Try not to, though they might. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, do so think, it's so I do wise. I do think we, you know, there's only a certain amount we really want to know. I mean, I really <laughs> believe so. Uh, it, 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 it'd be, you know, we we think it'd be impossible to continue if we actually had the teacher's edition of the book, you know, with the answers in the back.
2: Yeah, and and it's also just a kind of inborn contradiction in us. It's mm. it's this weird human condition.
1: Well, we're all we, we all know we're going to die, but we've made a pact with each other to to pretend that we don't know that until absolutely necessary. Yeah. So even when your 91-year-old aunt dies, you go, oh my God, she, she died? Aunt?
0: Yeah. You know, like, yeah. you know,
1: did you think she was gonna?
0: Oh, cursed morning, who told you to ride? When time's a sliding mask that may still roll back with our eyes.
2: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with singer-songwriter and producer, Joe Henry.
0: Oh, blessed falling, crawling into night I'm learning more than I intended Try not to, though I might
2: You know, that place of... Being at peace with this, with what is, which does become easier with age. It's not that it makes you get everything start getting everything right, but maybe it opens you to learning more than you intended.
0: <laughs> like mm-hmm. It just makes yeah. that a
2: little bit less painful, less surprising, well, you also, and I more we, welcome when it comes.
1: And we jettison a lot of the distraction that's taken up a lot of space on your on you know on your hard drive yeah. um, that you, know, you can really. Clear the field a bit I, I mean i'm I'm ashamed to think in my early professional life how much time I wasted and how much agony I allowed you know based on being treated poorly by an industry that advertises itself and brags about how poorly they treat people <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean it's just a fact but you
2: still took it personally
1: I took it personally and yeah. I wasted a lot of time I spent a lot of um, you know I spent a lot of you know significant time hurt over all the ways in which I was not being acknowledged, you know, by the people with whom I was trying to be in business. And I look back now and just think, you know, how, how did I not see through that, you know?
2: Yeah, but that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'd read books, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd heard other stories of musicians who, who that I admired terrifically who are much more gifted than, than myself, um, and who suffered much more indignity than, I, than I've than i ever been asked to suffer. And yet you still, we push on as if we're supposed to be exempt, and then we're shocked when we learn that we're not.
2: I think that's a good, I kind of wanted to come back around you, to Thomas Merton. And you, you also quoted Thomas Merton, and I think this follows on what you just said about that you were, moved by this, these lines of him that if you, you know, who are you writing for? Like, if you write mm-hmm. for God, you will reach many men and bring them joy. If you write for men, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. If you write only for yourself, you can read what you yourself have written. And after 10 minutes, you'll be so disgusted that you will wish that you were dead. <laughs> um, and there you go, using, using you know, talking about God again. But yeah. I, I, did, I did just want to ask you, what was it about that that captured you and that spoke to you in terms of what you've learned about who you're writing for and why?
1: Oh, I, I know that when I read that, it related instantly in my mind to... Um, Something that I had read earlier uh, from uh, Buckminster Fuller, of whom I'm a terrific admirer, and as an inventor, as a philosopher, as an architect, as a social uh, scientist, you know, his thought was, I am exponentially more successful when I am working for the good of the most people. So when I was trying to serve myself, I wasn't successful at all. When I worked. To, to benefit 10 people, I was that much more successful. When my work was to benefit 1,000 people, I was that much more successful. And when I thought that the work that I was doing would benefit all mankind, I was infinitely, beyond my imagination, successful. And when I read that from from Merton, I thought it was sort of the same idea. You know, as soon as I'm taking my focus off my... My own finite being, and pointing my lens out, I'm still filtering my work through my own experience. Mm-hmm. It's impossible not to. But if, as a writer, as any kind of creator, if you if you look within, that's a very finite space. If you use that lens to look out, and use your experience to look at everything else, you know, it's infinite. And I, I think when I when I, you know, Merton saying that was the most concrete I'd ever heard that mm-hmm. stated. Because I've certainly written things um, that the next Morning I read and wished I was dead.
2: <laughs> but maybe you loved them the night before when you first wrote them.
1: Oh um, right? of, of course you do.
2: <laughs> but, yeah. but but there's a new there's nuance there because um, to write for all mankind, as Buckminster mm. Fuller says, or to mm. write for God mm-hmm. as Thomas Merton says is not necessarily about having the highest profile thing, right It's not necessarily about having the biggest thing or being the celebrity yeah, right
1: apparently not. yeah um, so but you know but it is about just it's more about know, an intention And yeah and, and, and that intention is to free yourself of your own vanity and you know vanity in, in the great sense of the word, not just the, the way that we, we use it so colloquially now but but the idea of, of everything having to like reflect back on you you know um,
2: But I don't think that's what you do. And I think there's yeah. a way to let uh, truth and insights and words and songs come through you and be shaped by everything you are and know,
1: yeah. but mean, not have you be, at the center of the equation. I mean, we all want it to be pretty. And, I'm, you know, back to Bucky Fuller, you know, I remember him saying to a group of our young architect students, he said, quit thinking about beautiful, making anything beautiful. Put it out of your mind. If you're designing... A structure for somebody if the structure is sound and it's realizable and it's feasible for them and it serves the purpose and they can afford to do it it will be beautiful you can't miss beauty Hmm. and in this in the same way that I think the the, you know rawest um, most brutal parts of our humanity are nonetheless can be incredibly beautiful if we're willing to see them that you know see it that way You know, that's the great disparity. You know, what, what's the great quote from Tom Waits where he said, you know, I love, um, you know, beautiful melodies telling me terrible things.
2: Yeah, right, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I
1: might have gotten that a little bit wrong. But, you know, that, that idea that when, when we can really embrace, all, you know, every bit of our humanity, you know, even the, the parts that, that shame us the most. I mean, there is such great beauty in being cracked open. You know, how much beauty is, is there in our brokenness. You know, and if, if that's not a, a, a good summary for what I look for in a song, I don't know what
0: is. Okay. You know? <laughs> there is no sound Left in these walls The hallowed ground And long ago Heard it all of spirits rise, of spirits flow Just like the one that once I called my own Joe Henry has
2: recorded 15 albums throughout his career and written with and produced for dozens of other artists. His new album is The Gospel According to Water.
0: To where you wade into this flood
2: The On Being Project is Chris Hegel Lily Percy Marie Sambalay Lauren Dordal Tony Liu Aaron Kalasako Kristen Lynn
1: Profit Adewu Eddie Gonzalez Lillian Vo, Lillian Vo Lucas Johnson Damon Lee
0: Suzette Burley Zach Rose Siri Grassley Nicole Finn Colleen Scheck, And
2: Christiane Wartell The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
0: On Bing is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.